Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of Acts, chapter 21, and verse 18. <clears throat> Acts 21, 18, for our message, the word of God this morning. If you're using the church Bible and need a little help finding Acts 21.18, it'll be found on page 11.78. Today is June 11th, uh, 2023, Picnic Sunday here at Faith Bible Church. And our text is going to begin in Acts 21.18. And go on down through verse 30. And the title of this morning's message is Paul Meets Up with the James Gang. <laughs> Not the Jesse James Gang, or even the Joe Walsh James Gang. Uh, we're going to see the Apostle Paul. Meet up with the Apostle James's game. But of course, we're going to begin with the story of a man named James and his wife, Lucille, who went to the county fair every year, where every year there was a pilot charging people for rides in his small plane. And every year, for 45 years, James told his wife he wanted to go on a plane ride. He'd tell her, it's only $50. And every year, for 45 years, his wife would fold her arms and say, $50 is $50. Well, one year, the pilot overheard them, and he kind of felt sorry for James. And he offered to waive his fee if they didn't say one word during the flight. Well, they agreed to take him up on that. But when he got him up, there he did complete flips and barrel rolls and everything else he could think of to make him talk. And they still didn't utter one peep. And as they were landing the plane, the pilot turned back and said, You know, I'm pretty impressed. I thought sure you would say something and I'd get my $50. James said, well, I almost did when Lucille fell out. <laughs> but like my wife always says, $50 is $50. <laughs> well, speaking of guys named James, here in Acts chapter 21, the Apostle Paul has finally arrived in 
Jerusalem, like we've been talking about for a few chapters now. And he's about to meet up with the Apostle James and his gang of Jewish elders. To get the context, let's begin in verse 17, where we read these words. In Acts 21 and verse 17, it says, And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. Now, as you can kind of tell from reading that, James is the head of the Jewish kingdom church in Jerusalem. And that begs the question of, what happened to Peter? As I'm sure you remember, before the Lord Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and left the apostles on his own, he made Peter the head of the twelve apostles and the head of the Jewish kingdom church. So, What's James doing running the show here? <laughs> well, what you're seeing here is an example of the breakdown of the Jewish kingdom church. After the Jews rejected the kingdom of heaven that Peter offered them back in Acts chapter 3, the kingdom program began to unravel and break down and the Jews were no longer filled with the Holy Spirit of God like they were back in Acts chapter 2 and because of that they began to make decisions that they wouldn't have made if they had been still filled with the Spirit of God and replacing Peter, the Lord's hand-picked apostle, with James was one of those bad decisions, folks. I mean, James was not even one of the twelve apostles. And now suddenly, he's the head of the twelve apostles. We believe the only reason they picked him to replace Peter was because he was the Lord's brother. One of the kids that Mary had after the Lord was born. You know, if you think about it, he, he probably even looked like the Lord Jesus Christ. But does that sound like a good reason to make a man the head of the Jewish kingdom church? I mean... I know that kind of thing goes on among unbelievers out in the world all the time. But it shouldn't happen with God's people. If I were to die, don't be making my brother the new pastor here. I mean, <laughs> he's a great guy, but you shouldn't make him your pastor just because he's my brother. And he would agree with that, by the way. But here's the thing. 
God Almighty still loved the Jewish kingdom church. So he decided to honor their decision and recognize James as their new leader. We know that because he let James write a book of the Bible, folks. And I think we can even prove that God saw this coming, knew it would happen, and he pictured it with something that happened in the Old Testament. See, the name James is the Latin form of the Hebrew name, anybody? Jacob. Kind of like how the English name Peter is Pedro in Spanish, right? You, you know how that works. And in the Old Testament, there was a guy named Jacob who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, he was the patriarchal head of the 12 tribes, kind of like James was the new head of the 12 apostles. And what did Jacob's brother say about him in your first reference in Genesis 27, verse 36? He said, Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. The name Jacob means supplanter. And the word supplant means to replace somebody in a questionable way. If you know Jacob's story, you know that he took advantage of his brother's hunger to get his birthright, right? And he got his brother's blessing by tricking their old man. But after his brother complained about it, what did his father say in your next reference? In Genesis 27, 33. He said, I have blessed him, yea, and he shall be blessed. In other words, somehow, Jacob's father realized that even though he'd been duped into blessing Jacob, that God still accepted that Jacob would be the head of the 12 tribes. And that's a picture, folks, of how God would accept James, you know, Jacob's namesake, as the head of the 12 apostles. Even though he supplanted Peter in a questionable way to become the head of the twelve apostles by taking advantage of his family relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, folks, any old God can get his will done by using perfect spirit-filled men like the twelve were at Pentecost. Only the God of the Bible can take men who make bad decisions and use them. Like he used the 12 apostles and 
frankly, like he uses us when we make, even despite the fact that we make bad decisions, right? The bottom line is, you don't have to wonder if that book of James at the end of your Bible there belongs in the Bible just because it was written by a supplanter. Let's put it that way. Well, now it's time for Paul to report into James. It says in verse 19 that when he, Paul, had saluted them, uh, James and the Jewish elders, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. The words he told James all about the churches that he established among those Gentiles, as we've been reading about in our study of the book of Acts. And as you can imagine, James and all those Jewish elders were glad to hear about it, as you see in your next verse in your Bible now, in verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, Brother Paul, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they're all zealous of the law. Now, here, did you notice how quickly James went from praising God for what Paul had accomplished among the Gentiles to boasting about what he had accomplished among the Jews. It's almost like he's saying, yeah, yeah, Paul, you did good, but look what I did. <laughs> and I think what you're seeing there is an example of what in our modern day we call one-upmanship. Hear that? I'll see your Gentiles and I'll raise you thousands of Jews. Folks, it's a pride thing. It's an ego thing. And it is more proof that these Jews are no longer filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. You know, I don't even think James wanted to hear about what Paul was doing among the Gentiles. I know he didn't summon Paul. Look back at uh, verse 18. Did you wonder about this when we read verse 18? And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. Folks, James summoned the Apostle Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts. And Luke says, Paul went in with him and his gang to see James. If James had summoned Paul, it would say Luke went with Paul, but it doesn't say that. And listen, James knew that Paul was in Jerusalem. He heard all about the money that Paul was giving to those poor saints in Jerusalem that he collected from all those Gentile churches. So you would think he'd summon Paul to hear more about those Gentile churches that were giving his Jews all that money. 
Instead, he, he snubbed Paul and invites Luke for a hearing. And now he's engaging in this, this one-upmanship. So how can God possibly use James as the leader of the Jewish kingdom church if he's, if he's acting like such a petty, egotistical bozo, right? Well, you know, I believe he can use our pastors and leaders today despite the fact that they often act like petty, egotistical bozos. You never heard two preachers engaging in one-upmanship? Yeah, yeah, what you've been doing is nice, but come see the thousands of people in my church. <laughs> you never heard anybody? Oh, listen, you don't get out much. Now, I know maybe some of our grace leaders feel that way privately. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I can tell you this. I am glad that God does not need perfect, spirit-filled men to accomplish his will. Aren't you glad of that? Do you know how James started the epistle he wrote? Well, look at your next reference in James 1.1. 1, 1. He wrote, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. James describes himself as a servant of God and a servant of Jesus Christ. And God would not have let him write that in the Bible unless it was true. He wrote that by inspiration of God. That means God considered James his servant. And he considers you his servant too, despite all of your failures. But now, the reason James adds that his thousands of Jews there were all zealous of the law of Moses is because he has heard that Paul is out there telling Jews not to be zealous of the law of Moses. In your next verse, speaking of all those thousands of Jews, verse 21 says, They're informed of thee, Paul, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to follow Moses' law, they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Now, <laughs> what James is doing here is kind of sneaky. He's telling Paul, Paul, I'm not questioning what you're teaching. It's all these other Jews. They're wondering what you're up to. Not me. No, no. I have full confidence in you. But I can assure you, James has heard those things too. And he too is wondering if they're true. But in asking this question, the way he asks it, James was really putting Paul on the spot, folks. Because some of what he heard was true, and some of it wasn't. First of all, Paul was not out there telling Jews 
to forsake Moses or the law of Moses. He was telling Jews that Jesus Christ is the answer to the law of Moses. Look what he told some Jews back in Acts 13, 38-39. Through this man, Jesus Christ, he told those Jews in the synagogue that day, through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He's telling Christ is the answer to the law. Now, maybe you're saying, well, why does the law need an answer? <laughs> Well, it's because of what the law says in your next reference, Deuteronomy 6.25. It shall be our righteousness, if, underline the if, if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God, as he hath commanded us. They could be righteous before God if they just kept all the law. <laughs> well, problem is, the problem with the law is nobody can keep all the law. Shucks, we have enough trouble trying to keep ten of the commandments, let alone all the other commandments in the law. Jews who got saved under the law got saved by believing that the animals they sacrificed were the answer to the law. Paul was just out there giving the Jews God's new answer to the law, Jesus Christ. Look what he said in Romans 10.4. Don't forget, Deuteronomy 6 said it'll be our righteousness if we observe to do these things. In Romans 10.4, Paul says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And he meant everybody who believes in Christ sacrifice for their sins, not animal sacrifices. So back here in James, in, in Acts 21, the James gang, they heard that part wrong. Paul was not telling Jews to forsake Moses. He was telling them Christ is the answer to Moses. But after Paul told Jews to believe on Christ, he did tell them not to circumcise their children. And he did tell them not to walk after the law. He told them you're not under the law. So Paul's really on the spot here. How was he supposed to answer a false charge if there's some truth in it? He can't say no and he can't say yes. It reminded me of that old trick question of have you stopped beating your wife? Remember that question? How about you, Al? Now that you've had your 40th anniversary, have you stopped beating your wife? <laughs> you can't say yes because you never started beating your wife, right? And you can't say no because that would sound like you haven't stopped. <laughs> you can't answer a question that's true and untrue. And Paul couldn't either. So, he probably didn't know what to do. But James knew what he thought Paul should do. 
And he tells them in your next three verses in your Bible, beginning in verse 22. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. You're giving away money. They're going to hear about it. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them. We'll talk about what that means later. That they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law of Moses. So James is saying, just take this vow and it'll prove that none of what they heard about you is true. And if those words sound familiar, folks, the vow he's talking about is that Nazarite vow that we read about in our scripture reading this morning in Numbers chapter 6. The one where you, you shaved your head to prove your zeal for God and for the law of Moses that was the law of God. And James says, you know, there just so happens to be four men who just took that vow. And Paul, you know, if you join them, everybody will know that you keep the law zealously. Well, before Paul has the chance to answer, James wants to make something really clear, something he talks about in verse 25. So let's peek ahead to verse 25. He hastens to add, as touching the Gentiles which believe, we've written and concluded that they observe no such thing. They don't have to observe the law, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. James tells Paul, I'm not talking about the Gentiles that you lead to the Lord. We decided back in Acts 15 that they're not under the law. Paul, I'm talking about the Jews you lead to the Lord. You see, they hadn't discussed the Jews that, lead, that Paul led to the Lord at the, at the Jerusalem Council there in Acts chapter 15. So James doesn't know that Paul is doing nothing wrong in telling Jews they're not under the law. But poor Paul, he, he's like the guy who has to do something when he's asked if he stopped beating his wife. Paul's got to do something to answer what he's been charged with. What he decided to do is found in verse 26 in your Bible. Verse 26, then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered 
for every one of them. And that offering there, folks, was the offering of an animal sacrifice. Now, as you could tell from the wording there, the, the priest would offer it for them. But listen, that's always what the Bible means when it says a Jew offered a sacrifice. They weren't allowed to do it themselves. They'd give it to the priest, and he would offer the sacrifice. And remember those charges that we talked about earlier? Those were the charges that you had to pay to get the animals the animals to sacrifice. Animals cost money, folks. But the reason that they offered those animals was to pay for their sins, right? And we now know that those sacrifices were just, just types or symbols or Old Testament pictures of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for our sins. So to offer an animal sacrifice today would be something that God wouldn't want you or I to do. And he certainly didn't want the apostle of the Gentiles, the apostle of this dispensation, offering an animal sacrifice. And I think God proved that he didn't want Paul to offer that sacrifice because in the next few verses, he allowed a riot to break out to keep Paul from, from offering it. We'll look over these verses in detail later, but right now let's just read from verse 27 through verse 30. It says, when the seven days were almost ended, when it was almost time to offer that sacrifice, the Jews which were of Asia, and they saw Paul in the temple, they stirred up all the people in the temple and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people, and he means the people of Israel, and the law of Moses, and this place, the temple. Paul's out there dissing the temple. And furthermore, he brought Greeks, Gentiles, also into the temple, and had polluted this holy place. Well, where'd they get that idea? Well, verse 29, Luke adds in parentheses, for they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Verse 30, and all the city was moved, agitated, and the people ran together, and they took Paul, drew him out of the temple, and Schofield's little note tells you that they dragged him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. Well, I don't know what that looks like to you, but it sure looks to me like God allowed this riot to break out to keep Paul from offering that sacrifice. Now, here I have to add that God only did stuff like that back during this transition time from law to grace that we've been studying here in the book of Acts. If you go to do something God doesn't want you to do, he's not going to let a riot fight break out to stop you. He's not even going to read you the riot act. 
and threaten to kill you if you do what you're told not to do. That's what the riot act was. You know that? Look that up. In 1714, the riot act said that the police can kill you if you don't cease and disperse when you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. Well, folks, there has been a dispensational change since the transition period ended. When you are tempted to do something that God says you shouldn't do in his word, you have to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ paid for all the wrong things you do. You have to let the the love that he showed in dying for your sins make you think twice and then three times and then four times before you decide you're going to presume on God's grace. Well, now we got to ask why Paul wanted to take this vow. Certainly he knew everything we talked about this morning about why he shouldn't. And the answer to that is found in your next reference, in 1 Corinthians 9.20, where he says, and I think he's talking about what he's doing here, under the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, I became as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. In other words, Paul was willing to act like the, uh, like the Jews to gain the Jews. In other words, to get them to believe on Christ. So, he certainly meant well, but the bottom line is, offering an animal sacrifice was just taking that too far. So God stopped them with this riot. Now, when it comes to this riot, we know that unsaved Jews were always giving Paul grief throughout the book of Acts. We've seen it Sunday after Sunday. But these Jews of Asia that we just read about there in verse 27, the ones who incited this riot, They really had it in for the Apostle Paul because of what it says in your next reference in Acts 19. He went into the synagogue, a synagogue in Asia, by the way, and spake boldly. But when diverse of those Jews were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, not only they didn't believe, they they disrespected and, and rejected openly what he said. And when that happened, he departed from them, disputing daily in the school of a guy named Tyrannus. And that continued by the space of two years, so that all that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, Jews and Greeks. Paul started a Bible school in Asia that eventually reached all of Asia for Christ. And when that happened, this happened in Romans 11.11. Salvation has come to the Gentiles, like it did in Asia, to provoke the Jews to jealousy. (laughs) When Paul got all those Gentiles in Asia saved, it provoked those Asian Jews to jealousy, because you see, It was their job to tell all of Asia about Israel's God. And when Paul did their job, they got jealous. 
And I'm talking crazy, let's push Paul off a cliff kind of jealous. Only they were too smart to kill him themselves. They knew if they made some false accusations against Paul that the other Jews at Pentecost who were all emotionally charged because it was the Feast of Pentecost, they knew if they made those false accusations, they can get all the other Jews riled up and they would do their dirty work. They'd kill Paul. So they made those accusations that we read about in verse 28. Let's read them again. They cried out, Men of Israel, help! This Paul guy, this is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people of Israel, charge number one. The law of Moses, charge number two. And this place, the temple, by bringing Greeks into the temple and it polluted these things. And none of those things were true. All the apostle Paul ever said about the people of Israel is what it says in Romans 15.10. Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. Paul was not out there putting the people of Israel down. He was out there lifting the Gentiles up. And all he said about the law was that Christ is the answer to the law. We talked about that. And he knew better than to bring a Gentile into the temple. He knew what Lamentations 1, 8, and 10 says, your next reference. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned. The heathen entered into her sanctuary. That's the temple. Whom thou didst command that they should not enter into thy congregation. So there was just no way that Paul would bring a Gentile into the temple. He had way too much respect for his fellow countrymen in Israel to do that. So why would anyone believe that Paul would bring a Gentile into the temple? Well, what did we read in verse 29? For they had seen before with him in the city of Jerusalem Trophimus and Ephesian whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Well, there's some flimsy evidence. <laughs> Paul had been seen with a Gentile, so naturally that proves he must have brought the Gentile into the temple, right? I mean, if you see me talking to Josh, does that prove that he took me into the prison where he works? I don't think so. But these Asian Jews here, they saw this as their chance to get Paul in some really, really hot water. Because you see, this Trophimus guy, he wasn't just any Gentile. Verse 29 says he was an Ephesian Gentile. And what were the Ephesians famous for, according to your next reference in Acts 19.35? What man is there that knoweth not how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter. Everybody on the planet knew that Ephesus, where the Ephesians come from like Trophimus, Ephesus was the, the, the epicenter of idolatry in all of Asia. 
And that's the kind of Gentile they're charging Paul with bringing into the temple. A pagan of the pagans. A heathen of the heathens. And that's why it says in the last verse in our text, in verse 30, and all the city was moved when they heard that. And the people ran together and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple. And forthwith, the doors were shut. Now folks, you got to wonder why they shut the doors of the temple. I mean, it wasn't likely Paul was going to try to sneak a Gentile into the temple under their very noses, right? Well, we can't be sure of why they shut the doors. But there's no superfluous words in the Bible. You believe that? It mentions that for a reason. And I think the reason is they were fixing to kill Paul. In fact, all you got to do is glance at verse 31. As they went about to kill him, it says in the very next verse. And I think, as they went about to kill him, that they were afraid that Paul would do what a guy named Adonijah did in your next reference. In 1 Kings 1, in verse 50. Adonijah feared because of King Solomon. And he arose, and he went into the temple, and caught hold on the horns of the altar. Now, if you know the story there, you know what was going on. King David was dying, and he made it clear that he was leaving his throne, the throne of Israel, to his son Solomon. But this Adonijah, decided, uh, the Adonijah guy, he decided that he would make a much better king than Solomon. <laughs> so he starts acting like a king, hoping everybody will say he's the king's dad. And when Solomon got wind of that, Adonijah was afraid that Solomon was going to kill him. So he ran into the temple and grabbed onto those big old horns on the sides of the altar, thinking that Solomon would never kill him in the temple of God, right on the horns of the very altar of God. And he figured right, Solomon spared him. And here in Acts 21, these Jews, I think they closed the temple's door to keep Paul from running into the temple and grabbing those very same horns to get that very same mercy that Adonijah had. But, did you ever hear the expression, this door swings both ways? Yeah. In closing the temple doors to Paul, they were also closing the temple doors to themselves, weren't they? So they weren't just keeping Paul from the mercy of God, they were keeping themselves from the mercy of God. Symbolically, anyway. And how many times have we seen in our study, this book of Acts is a book of symbols. And closing those temple doors there was a symbol of how they were just pounding another nail into the coffin of the nation Israel. And how God was closing the book slowly on the nation of Israel. Especially 
since there was another guy who ran to the horns of the altar for mercy in the Old Testament. You read about him in your last reference there. In 1 Kings 2, 28, 29. And Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord. And he too caught hold on the horns of the altar. And it was told King Solomon. Then Solomon sent Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go and follow him. And if you know your Bible, you know what that means. That means go fall on him with a sword and kill him. So, how come, how come hanging onto the altar saved Adonijah and not Joab? Well, go home and do some digging. You'll find out. That the reason is Joab killed a couple of guys, folks. He killed little Abner <laughs> and a guy named Amasa. And folks, that's symbolic of how the people of Israel killed a couple of guys. The Lord Jesus Christ and his prophet Stephen. And the law of Moses said you can't have any mercy on murderers. Israel's only hope was the Christ that, G, that, that the Apostle Paul was out there preaching to those Jews. And he's our only hope this morning too, folks. If you haven't believed on him as your Savior, you need to do that now before it's eternally too late. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our Savior. We know you planned all along for him to bear our sins in his own body on the tree like Peter talked about. We know it because you pictured it with all those sacrifices. How well I remember many years ago hearing a preacher. He did the math. He crunched the numbers and he added up all the barrels and barrels and barrels of blood that were shed for their sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood of one man that we know is the ultimate answer to our sins. That is the one who paid for our sins. And now we ask your blessing on the fellowship that we're about to enjoy with one another around him and the food that we're going to partake of. We thank you, Father, that we live in a land where we don't have to pray that food will get multiplied and that there'll be enough for everybody to eat. And I thank you for this church family and for their hunger for your word and that wanting to understand the details of what your word says. What a thrill it is to be their pastor. Bless our fellowship now, we pray, and we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.